God's holy word. Our first passage is from Psalm 118, and that is found on page 956 in your pew Bibles. And then our next passage will be from Luke. Psalm 118, verses 19 to 29. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine, out, shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Our next passage is from Luke 19, and that's found on page 1,631. We'll be reading from 28 to 40. The Triumphal Entry. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. The very words of God.
And our text this morning is uh, verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, some might say, Palm Sunday on Pentecost. An interesting but ultimately insignificant one-time biblical event, a somewhat surprising and isolated one-off. We, we don't really give it a key position in the church calendar because it's actually a precursor, the harbinger, the gateway to the really, really big event, Easter and the crucifixion. But let's rethink that again this morning. I wonder, I wonder if we can give this well-known and taken-for-granted mediocre opening act to a higher level. To, in fact, understand it for what it really is at the time or was at the time the main event. And I'm not saying that just because I don't have a Pentecost sermon at the ready. It really is the main event. The reason for this God becoming human thing. The great exchange, if you will. It remains an earth-shaking challenge to business as usual. Let's understand Palm Sunday for what it is, even today still. Every day is Palm Sunday. And allow me to explain. And I'll begin this way. Being from Edmonton, there is a well-known city rivalry, isn't there, between Edmonton and Calgary. Although Calgary doesn't really acknowledge it all that much. Um, But I'll just say, because I grew up near Toronto and our new pastor, Henry Cranenberg, is from Hamilton, Ontario, I would add Hamilton and Toronto have a rivalry too because of their football teams the Toronto Argonauts and the Hamilton Tiger Cats have always had a marked rivalry between them. You know, Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, was about the French Revolution, and the setting was Paris, France, and London, England. I read that book recently, and I'm sure all of you remember one of the great opening lines in at least English literature, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Within Israel, you see, in many ways there was a rivalry tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Rome. And you could say about it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Palm Sunday is where faith engages politics. I mean, the very act of Jesus riding into the city and be, from the country and being proclaimed king is a political act. Now, the word politics has its root in the, work, in the Greek word polis, city. Jesus enters the city and brings from the rural areas of Galilee and Nazareth and Capernaum into the city 
the message of the peace of Christ. Now, for Jews, the city of Jerusalem had an ambiguous, almost contradictory status. On the one hand, Jerusalem was the center of their world and devotion, the place of God's presence in the temple, the destination of pilgrimage, the holy city. Yet the city was almost continually throughout history the scene of religious collaboration with one imperial power or another, Assyria, Babylon, Rome. And at the time of Jesus, the high priest and his circle of aristocratic families ruled the Jewish homeland on behalf of the Roman Empire. Jewish religious leaders were given their positions of power and wealth by the Roman governor at Jesus' time, Pontius Pilate. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And just think about this. Every year, 250,000 pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem together a city whose permanent population was around 40,000, the size of Spruce Grove, say. More than six times the usual number, the equivalent of two and a half times the population of Red Deer. And they were there to celebrate Passover, to remember the Exodus, the liberation from bondage in Egypt. Now, Historians, in particular Marcus Borg and Dominic Crossan in their book, The Last Week, what the Gospels really teach us about Jesus' final days in Jerusalem. That book highlights that historians have found that in addition to being a destination of pilgrimage, Rome always staged an imperial parade in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Every Jew in Jesus' day knew about this, but for whatever reasons, it's not mentioned in the biblical accounts, likely because everybody knew about it. Of course there was a parade. The imperial parade through Jerusalem was led each year by the governor dispatched by Rome for this time of year, and he would ride into Jerusalem on his war horse. From the west, Thank you. From the West? Because that's, that's where his palatial mansion was. Um, in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. And those gathered on the streets would witness strong horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, and golden eagles mounted on poles. And all of these were trappings of raw power. And there's no doubt that both the sights and the sounds of that imperial parade were meant to serve as reminders of just who was in charge and had control over the Jewish people's lives and their deaths in this city, Jerusalem. Now there's tension for sure. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Pilate and Rome symbolize what's known as 
Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The peace which existed across the entire Roman Empire. That is, no war. Because any dissent whatsoever or attempt at freedom from Rome was crushed by Rome. So there was peace. Every Jew in Jerusalem would have known that this annual imperial parade was happening. But this particular year, there were two different processions happening which epitomized two different understandings, understandings of humanity and understandings of the way the world worked. The man in the other procession, the humble man riding on a donkey, that symbolizes Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. This looks for all the world like a planned political demonstration. In the Bible, the donkey is a symbol of humility, labor, and strangely enough, regal authority. I mean, David rode on a donkey, Solomon rode on one too, and Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, wrote, and I quote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus was already by this time on the political radar, the religious and political radar, as a troublemaker. In Luke 13, we can read that some Pharisees, likely under order from Jerusalem's religious leaders, wanted to scare Jesus away from Jerusalem. So these people came to Jesus and they said to him, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus was proclaiming a new religious and political order, a new way of living, a new way of being. That's why the leaders in Jerusalem already had Jesus on their radar. They wanted to keep things the way they were, and Jesus was threatening that. And this is also why Jesus' subversive procession, his parade, his street theater, if you will, was so fearsome. And even during the procession, right during the parade, the Pharisees told Jesus to order the people to stop celebrating the powers that be in Jerusalem were observing and they were holding their breath. Oh, this was rich. At Jesus' parade, the peasants who lined the streets watched a man sitting on a colt, a donkey, not a war horse, riding in from the east, not from the west. And the east, if you remember, is the direction from which the Magi came when Jesus was born, and they were masters of civil disobedience, coming from outside of Caesar's realm, honoring a different kind of king, and sneaking away from violent Herod, that Roman puppet king. That's why anyone who saw Jesus' parade, that subversive and not at all innocent image orchestrated by Jesus, would have thought of Jesus as a different kind of king than the one presently they had in Herod. And they would have remembered Zechariah's words of prophecy. They 
were thrilled. They knew what this meant. At least, they thought they knew what this meant. A new king for them and a violent end to the Romans. But their leaders were making deals with the Romans. Jerusalem, in bed once again with the most current superpower of the day. Jerusalem religious leaders loved power. Experience tells us, and the Bible in Psalm 146 confirms, don't put your trust in princes who wage war and use violence for what they want, in mortals in whom there's no help. Jesus laments over Jerusalem, doesn't he? In the same chapter we read just a little bit further. For killing the prophets and stoning those sent by God to lead them. And I quote, If only you had recognized the things that make for peace. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they're going to crush you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Now, tell me, why could they be so excited about Jesus one day and shout crucify him on another day. I believe that that was because this story was before Pentecost. And the people were still looking for a different kind of leader. What kind of a leader was Jesus? What kind of a kingdom was he bringing in? Well, George MacLeod the founder of the Iona community in Scotland, once preached a sermon in Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City in which he said this, the love of power has ruled the world since the beginning of time. Only one force is sufficient for our day. It is the power of love. The love of power. The power of love. That's what Pentecost allows us to see. I mean, even the disciples didn't get it until the Holy Spirit came down on them. That's what's meant by those two parades, those two different worldviews in Jerusalem, the Roman peace and the peace of Christ. One is rooted in the love of power and the other in the power of love. On the day of Pentecost, and I'm quoting now from Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And then it looked like flames of, or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this happen? How can this be? These people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. 
Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, to be both Lord and and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other disciples, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent and of your sins and turn your hearts toward God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit this promise is to you and your children and those far away, all who've been called by the Lord your God. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. But this is not just a tale of two cities from 2,000 years ago, is it? Kathy Galloway, a fine theologian and preacher, wrote that Palm Sunday is always happening and we're always being confronted by the challenge of that different way of being. The way of peace that doesn't shrink from conflict but refuses violence. The way that sees the people that are overlooked and that aren't counted. That is the way of self-offering. Palm Sunday is always happening. Whenever the politics are not about love, it happens whenever we're unable to find anything positive to say about another person. Whenever we find ourselves scrambling for examples of how utterly terrible, without exception, another city is and its inhabitants are, or when we convince ourselves how beyond question just how thoroughly bad another religious practice and its adherents are, or how wrong others are who are oriented differently than we are. Palm Sunday is always happening whenever it's not about love. In short, when we approach the city, polis, politics, ask ourselves, am I lining up with a love of power? Am I wanting to resort to and rely on power, on violence? Am I opting for my own version of leather armor and life-robbing jackboots as my way of dealing with what troubles me and what opposes my way of thinking? and seeing things or wanting things to go my way? Or do I have confidence to follow Christ?
the way of peace that doesn't shrink from conflict but refuses violence? Am I going to live in the peace of Christ, caring for the overlooked and not counted people who live within the differing communities even in this town and as a church? And so on Pentecost this morning, on this tale of two cities, which procession am I cheering for? This day of hosannas and singing and laughter, it is the best of times. It's the worst of times. And very soon, during this coming week, as these triumphant shouts of Hosanna fade into the background, another week lies before us. We too are called to face the temptation of the love of power. We're invited this Pentecost to remember that the love of power was undermined. The one who was put to death by power on Friday rose on Sunday. And we're invited to observe the signs of his establishing for eternity the dominance of the power of love. And we're invited to join in that procession, that parade. Jesus doesn't only invite us to join in for forgiveness of our sins. Jesus offers renewal, life now, hope now that we could trust God's steadfast love for us and that that will endure forever. Jesus invites us to take every bit of ourselves to the cross, deposit it there, and Jesus is asking us, will you let me set you free? Come, join the main event. And it isn't that God needs us as if our hosannas, our participation, and our admiration were necessary for God somehow to feel complete. God is not codependent. The beauty here is not that God needs us, but that God wants us. God loves us. And God has been doing this for a long, long time. All along. This has been going on since the creation Human beings of old just haven't had that spirit inside of them to see it. God has been showing us that this is the better way to live, God's shalom, inviting us into a Palm Sunday procession where there is life now. This is the main event, the way of love, the power of love. It can be the best of times. It can be the worst of times. Give thanks to God every day for God is good, for God's steadfast love endures forever. Because of Pentecost, every day can be Palm Sunday. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.